When I say personal branding, do you say, ew? I'm Lisa Leong, and my guest today on This Working Life is Dory Clark. Dory's an executive coach and author of the best-selling personal brand Bible, Reinventing You. As Australians, the concept of personal branding feels a little bit yuck, but Dory is going to help us get over ourselves. <laughs> what, what I like to say, Lisa, is if the term personal branding is offensive, the good news is you don't have to use it because r- really, you know, we're kind of lucky here. There, There is a synonym that most people feel a lot better about. Fundamentally, personal brand, you know, it's kind of a modern term or a modern coinage, but all it is referring to is your reputation. That's it. And a lot of people say, oh, personal brand is terrible. Why do I have to think about that? But the truth is, if we just do a little substitution, most people realize on its face that if you actually were to say, oh, I don't care what my reputation is. Why do I have to think about my reputation? It kind of lands a little bit differently. Like It actually does matter if people think that you're good at what you do. It actually does matter if you have a business, let's say, um, that people understand what the heck it is that you're selling or the service that you're offering. And so I think many times personal branding has become somehow caught up in these connotations of people bragging, uh, people chest thumping, people just saying how great they are. And of course, nobody wants to listen to that. That is not the point. What the, no, no way. <laughs> so the point is ultimately that you know, and I think most people could probably get behind this to one degree or another. Number one, it is important to understand how you would like to be perceived. Number two, it is important to understand as best we can how people actually perceive us. And then number three, if there is a gap between those two things, it kind of behooves us to try to close that gap. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So what are we doing with those three steps. Have you got any pithy advice for us there? Well, I do, as a matter of fact. So ultimately, when it comes to, uh, to figuring out your personal brand and, you know, how you, how you begin to take action on all of those things, I mean, one really easy starting point, uh, is actually something that I suggest called the three word exercise. This is like the, the easiest, fastest exercise in the world. Um, and you can do this you know, you can text some friends, you could put this on Facebook if you want. You can even just ask people face to face because it's it's so simple. But the basic idea is you just say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm doing this exercise, you can blame me and, uh, and say, uh, I have a question for you. If you had to describe me in three words, what would they be? Now, odds are, this is not like people are going to tell you shocking things you've never heard about yourself, right? You're probably going to be nodding. Um, if you think of yourself as a quiet person, they're probably not going to secretly tell you you're, you're boisterous or whatever. Like it'll probably be in line. But the part that is actually very powerful is that what we don't know and what we can't know without asking people is what is it about us that other people think is most distinctive. That's the crucial thing. We have no idea. We might know all these things about ourselves, but we have no idea what other people think is important or special or meaningful about us. You know, what's the thing that stands out? And when you can figure that out, it begins to give you a trail of breadcrumbs that you can follow so that you can understand 
what it is that you do differently or better than other people. Lisa Leong in three words. Hmm. Energetic, intuitive, fearless. What I find sets you apart is your curiosity. She makes me feel happy and hopeful and less afraid. That's a really useful exercise. So, Dory, we might not be able to control other people's perceptions of us, but we can steer our careers in the right direction. And you have a good example of this. There's a guy that I actually wrote about in Harvard Business Review that I got to know. I was working uh, for uh, this, this hospital, actually, for a consulting engagement, and I got to know him. And he was somebody that everybody was talking about, everyone was buzzing about, because he had risen through the ranks so quickly. He was, um, he was a, a C-suite executive. He was 35 years old. And the bizarre part was he was the chief communications officer, but he had started at the hospital as a nurse. And so pretty much no one could even figure out, like, how did this guy, how did this sort of random nurse have this meteoric rise? And so I was really fascinated and I talked to him about what he did. And one of the things he said, which I thought was quite interesting, he, he's like, oh, well, it's just, it's simple. I pre-wrote my resume. And I said, like, what does that mean? What, do you, what does it mean to pre-write your resume? And what he told me was that pretty much like everybody else, he updates his resume every year. But instead of doing it the normal way where he says, oh, well, what am I doing now? You know, what are my accomplishments here? Let me update my title. He writes a resume set five years in the future. And he writes down what he wants his job to be at that point. And what is really critical because lots of people have vision boards or whatever. But what he does is in very meticulous detail, he writes down what his responsibilities will be that he has to have for that job and what are the jobs that he needs to have in between now and then to make sure he's qualified for that job so that it basically becomes a planning tool for him so he can understand what skills he lacks or what connections he lacks and create a plan so that in five years he can end up in the place he wants to be. Um, I, I love that as a sort of setting sort of your future vision, but then you mentioned the gap. So what do we do with this gap? Should we retrain? Should we go back and pick up an MBA perhaps story? So depending, of course, on what your goals are, it's going to necessitate different strategies. In some cases, uh, especially if you want to really reinvent yourself, you want to have a, a different line of work or a different type of career, you may need to get additional training. You may need a different degree or to, to learn new things. You need a computer language or a foreign language or uh, just to familiarize yourself with uh, with new processes or tools. It could be you know skill development, soft skills. But one thing that I do caution against, as you were alluding to, is that sometimes people view getting a degree as I think a kind of panacea. And, you know, this is for most of us been drilled in by our parents, by our grandparents, that the right answer is always another degree. And I think in our modern world, I'm not really convinced that that's a case. Certainly, I teach for many excellent MBA programs, and I think the MBA is a fantastic degree to get. But I never want someone to get it because they just don't know what to do with their life and oh why not like there's there's probably a lot of other things you could do with a hundred or two hundred thousand uh, dollars besides oh I guess I'll just do this thing 
I think it's incumbent upon all of us to be really thoughtful about how we are investing not only our money, but our time, which really is our most precious resource. If you need to learn how to be a better blogger, you know, don't, don't go get an MFA because you want to be a better blogger. There's probably a three hour class you can take online that will get you 90% of where you need to go for that targeted thing. So really be thoughtful and understand precisely what you want to learn or who you want to meet or who you want to connect with. And then you can work backwards from there and make smart choices. I love that. Um, now, in terms of your own personal brand, you say that it was really important to become a trusted source. How did you do that? Part of why I believe that having a strong personal brand or reputation, if we prefer that term, uh, is so important is that ultimately we all know that the world is getting just more and more competitive. I mean, for, for anything that you do, any service you provide, anything you sell, there are a million other people out there that someone could choose. And odds are some of them are going to be cheaper. And so we really have to be thoughtful about understanding, okay, if someone is going to work with us and if they are going to pay a premium, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, but if they're going to be paying some kind of a premium to work with us, why do we deserve that? We have to really understand it and know it and believe it and be able to convey it to other people. And that is not necessarily an easy task. This is why I think a lot of people get stressed out about the idea of personal brand. I mean, it can be a very confronting process, but at the end, just think about how empowering it is to really understand and to feel that you know what you can offer and you know what you're worth. And when I started out in my business, it was very hard. It was very complicated for me. I'd have people who would say, you know, well, what do you specialize in? Or, you know, what's your niche? And I didn't know, like I wanted to know, I desperately wanted to know, but I just really didn't have any idea. And so like a lot of people, I was kind of hard on myself, but you know, now I coach a lot of people. I run an online course uh, for people in you know, a community for people who are aspiring coaches and consultants. And I see this all the time. They, they feel bad that they don't really know, but it's an organic process. You have to kind of live into it and you learn by doing. But as you gain greater clarity through the work you're doing with people where you see, oh, this is where I really excel is in working with this population of clients or wow, you know, th these people over here seem to, to really love what I'm doing. They keep recommending me to their friends. You begin to see that over time and it becomes very powerful. It becomes, you know, as, as they say in the business world, it becomes a moat for you uh, because it really is a competitive advantage. And what makes your business or your career sustainable over time is if you understand that difference and you understand what it is worth and can help articulate it, then you, that is the greatest kind of career insurance you can possibly have for the long term. I'm Lisa Leong and with me, Dory Clark. Dory's been a political advisor and journalist and is now a highly sought after keynote speaker, executive coach and writer. Dory, why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, honestly, because I had been running a nonprofit and I was very stressed out and very underpaid. And I realized I had this sudden realization about a year into running this tiny little 
underfunded nonprofit that I was basically running a business. I had never thought of it that way that, oh, my little nonprofit, this actually is a business. Like we're not optimizing for profit, but we also, we can't afford to lose money either. And once I realized that I was already running a business, suddenly it just hit me like this revelation. I'm like, I could run my own business and it would, it would be so much better. Like I knew I would have less stress. I knew I would make more money. And I thought, you know what? This is going to be great. And so I plotted for a year. I gave my board a year's notice so they could find another executive director to replace me. And uh, I laid the groundwork for my ultimate entrepreneurial venture. And so if you say a knowledge worker and 2021 is your year to become an entrepreneur. How do you turn your expertise into money then? Well, I think one of the most important things that you can do is the opposite of what I did (laughs) because I really didn't know what I was doing. What I did was I planned for a long time and I was taking courses. I was, you know, really trying to walk the talk. So I, I was reading a million business books and I was taking adult ed courses on the weekend so I could learn about budgeting software and about, you know, all business plans and all these things. And that was good. That was a great thing to do. But the part that I didn't do, which is actually, frankly, the most important part is I didn't get clients. And I just was like, oh, well, you know, I'll launch my business and then I'll go get clients. This is a terrible idea. What you should actually be doing is you should be starting the business on the side now, nights and weekends, get clients now. And then when it's time for you to to actually leave, if you want to go do it full time, you're not going to have some cataclysmic drop in your income. You're going to have a much softer landing because you already have revenue coming in and your business concept is already validated. Um, How do you avoid burnout? Because I know that that is a problem for entrepreneurs, isn't it? It can be. It can be. And the honest truth is early on, it's not easy. You know, I mean, I think sometimes people have these sacrosanct ideas about, oh, well, you know, I have to recharge on my Saturdays and Sundays. And if that's the case, great, but you are probably always going to be stuck on that treadmill if that's the case. Part of the bet that you make in entrepreneurship is, are you willing for, not forever, but for a period of time, are you willing to work disproportionately hard so that you can then have a much easier and more lucrative life later on. That's that's the trade-off. And so what's the role of the online world in all of this story? I would imagine it could be quite empowering for this idea. The online world is is actually really powerful in the sense that ultimately, even if you have a relatively small niche, you can make a good living from it. There's a a classic essay that came out well over a decade ago now uh, called A Thousand True Fans by a guy named Kevin Kelly, who was an early editor at Wired Magazine. And, you know, he he made the case, which I think is, is still really powerful, that whatever you are, I mean, he was using the example of like an artist or a musician. If you have just a thousand people in the world that like what you do enough to spend a hundred bucks a year on your products. And, you know, if you're a musician, that might be, maybe they buy a t-shirt, maybe they go to a couple of concerts, something manageable. You are able finally to have a really good middle-class income. And I think that's, that's true for any of us. We can have very, very small niches and still be able to be extremely successful within that. 
Um, what's your final word of advice for someone launching themselves as a business? Well, I think it is an amazing time to be doing it. Post-COVID, we all have gotten much more than we ever wanted or hoped for a dose of reality and of, of really understanding that life is not predictable. We have no idea what is coming down the pike. And one of the most powerful things that we can have, one of the most powerful gifts that we can give ourselves is optionality and autonomy. If we are able to take steps now that increase our ability to be flexible and resilient, no matter what's coming, it could be great, it could be you winning the lottery, it could be, you know, the stock market doubles, whatever it is, or it could be terrible, it could be, you know, pandemics or natural disasters or wildfires or whatever it is, we just don't know. And so if we can take steps that will enable us to be successful under a variety of circumstances and to give us more control in our lives, that is a great thing. And the good news about entrepreneurship is that we can all take steps, small steps, but powerful ones to create portfolio careers for ourselves. And I just really consider that a kind of modern insurance policy that we all can and hopefully should be cultivating. Thank you so much, Dory. Thanks, Lisa. Great speaking with you. Dory Clark. And Dory's most recent book is Entrepreneurial You. What do you do to prepare yourself for a big moment at work? Say, a presentation or an important meeting. My next guest was formerly lead singer of a band, so he uses a specific song to get his brain into gear. For me, it's the power pose. Now, I learnt about power posing from American social psychologist Amy Cuddy. I was one of the more than 60 million viewers of her 2012 TED Talk. Social psychologists have worked themselves into a lather over the years, though. Does it actually work? So for his master's dissertation, executive coach Tom Lonka dug into the research around the power pose to try to figure it all out. So the power pose involves pretty much thinking of two dimensions, expansion and openness. And it can be done um, sitting down or standing up. So the sitting position, for example, involves uh, sitting back on your chair with your hands behind your head, taking up a lot of space and being open to the environment around you. The alternative contractive postures, on the other hand, were the opposite. So you'd be shrinking in, uh, being small and also more closed to the stimuli around you. And the standing one in the original experiment was um, standing astride at a desk, looking squarely ahead. And since that original experimental position, the Wonder Woman pose also became associated with power posing, where you stand astride in that classical Linda Carter type of stance. Hands on hips, legs confidently astride and posture straight. <laughs> Wonder <Yes>. Woman. <laughs> That's right, Lisa. I'm doing it. Ah, oh, yeah, that good. does feel, I feel yeah. energised. How would you describe how you're supposed to feel, Tom? Well, the original experiment, um, it, the, the feeling thing that they measured was it's a four-point scale and at the top end of the scale was a sense of feeling powerful and in control. Tom, this original research on the power pose dates back to 2010. What did they find? So in 2010, three researchers from Columbia and Harvard universities, so that was Dana Carney, Amy Cuddy, and also their colleague, Andy Yap, they examined whether these um, brief postural adjustments of two minutes, the power pose, 
could produce um, positive outcomes across three areas. So the feeling more powerful, the, the subjective psychological benefit, behavioral outcomes, and hormonally also. And what their experiment revealed was a big and emphatic yes on all three questions. So people felt significantly more powerful, um, which was the psychological benefit. Behaviorally, they were more likely to take on uh, adaptive or good levels of risk. And hormonally, uh, good things happened to both testosterone and cortisol. So testosterone, the hormone associated with victory, went up and cortisol, the, the stress hormone, went down. Now, that all sounds good, but the problem was that these results couldn't be replicated. This was a scientific alarm bell. So the first replication failure was from the University of Zurich's Eva Rainhill and her colleagues who attempted a replication of the experiment. They strayed a little bit at, at the margins, but the, but the main thing that emerged from that was that they found that only the psychological outcome, so that feeling of power, uh, was replicated, but those bigger findings on behavioural and hormonal outcomes didn't. And then right at the end, uh, there's been some recent controversy over um, the absence of a neutral pose. That's right. Well, look, with the original power posing experiment and also a lot of the replication attempts of it, the researchers have pretty much been faffing about at lower levels of um, scientific rigour. So they've looked at one condition versus another. And as we know now in this COVID period, um, it's all about randomised controlled trials. So you need a control that hasn't been impacted. So this was the thing that was pointed out. Most of these studies have lacked a neutral control condition. And while the physical effects still haven't been reliably replicated, there may be some psychological benefit according to recent meta-analysis of power pose research. All 28 co-authors, including Dana Carney herself, indicated that it's clear that an effect on felt power, um, this psychological benefit was observed with future research designed best directed at disentangling what this means in more practical terms like does it differ across males and females, um, different contexts, and also personality factors like does it work better for extroverts versus introverts, etc. The thing I find quite funny about all of this, Tom, is that, you know, is there any dangers to me if I do a power pose or not? And all of this research going into whether or not the power pose is useful, uh, what are your reflections on that? Because that seems like it's um, a lot of focus for something which is a good suggestion for maybe being expansive and changing our mindset around things. But what do you think? If it works and it helps, that's all fine. But a more kind of restricted interpretation of power posing, like it's a panacea that works in all contexts, where wherever social evaluation might occur, that's, Lisa, where you might fall flat. And that's, you know, a good example of that is what happened with the UK Conservative Party. Like suddenly they were getting on stage in front of a critiquing uh, media audience, and there they were doing these quite unnaturally wide things with their legs, <laughs> um, thinking that it would work um, for their circumstances. But but really they misread the room. And that that's an important part of the mix, like whatever context you're in, read the room. And sometimes it might actually be more powerful to play low and um, shrink it within yourself if your goal is to, you know, for example, display some uh, momentary deference to your CEO while he's speaking. It's entirely appropriate to the context and will also do your, your reputation and your status uh, no harm at all. Uh 
And the way I use it is just before a workshop, before I go on the stage or before I do a call, I'll do a power pose. But I usually do it with the person that I'm collaborating with and we've got big smiles on our faces and we kind of have a laugh. Okay. And and it's, so it's used to connect as much as anything rather than to uh, create a sense of sort of power over people or anything like that. Yes. Well, look, um, there's a couple of things there, Lisa, that I've noticed. So you're using it in a preparatory sense which is um, what the, um, the original authors proposed, like preparing for those stressful situations rather than unnaturally bringing it somewhere where it might not be appropriate, which is what happened with the UK Conservative parties. And also you're doing it in an environment where it's okay. The, the unwritten rules for that social interaction say, let's power pose to our mutual benefit, which is contextually appropriate. And Lisa, I can also think of the opposite. Like often you think of chats with your colleagues, you might be gathered in a circle and it's all very serious, but you could all be leaning in and actually contracting in what might be a traditional interpretation of power posing. And that will be entirely appropriate. You know, if you suddenly stretched out and, you know, spread your legs akimbo, it could be quite a wrong move. Tom Longcar. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who will take a good lie down over a power pose any day. If you enjoy our show, make sure you hit follow so we land in your playlist each week. And if you like what we do, share us around because everyone needs to find their inner Wonder Woman at work. And just on that, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? If so, we would love to hear your stories to include in next week's show. Email us at thisworkinglife at abc.net.au. I'm Lisa Leong, and until then, keep working. <laughs>